With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, welcome into another edition of the Nick Bob Podcast, coming to you live from the AOI studios. If you're looking for the absolute best in office furniture, like this great table I've got right in front of me right here for my pod room, or some new chairs, like the Aeron chair from Herman Miller that I'm currently sitting in, you got to check out AOI, the Aeron chair from Herman Miller is based on the latest research around the science of sitting, advancements in materials, manufacturing, and technology. I love this chair. Check out AOI on the web, aoicorp.com. That's aoicorp.com, or give them a call, 402 896 55 That's 896-5520. It is Thursday night, February 6th, and we got uh, a heck of a podcast on deck for you. John Niatawa is going to stop by in a little bit. Uh, Creighton beat writer for the Omaha World Herald. Uh, Obviously, the Blue Jays had a great win at Villanova over the weekend and got back into the top 25 and then had a stinker of a second-half Uh, at Providence, and lost on the road to the Friars. So there's a lot to discuss with that game and the Creighton season as March is getting closer and closer and closer. But before I bring on John, I've gotten a few tweets and emails about this new Big Ten transfer rule proposal and people kind of wondering what my thoughts are on it because, you know, I'm someone that's transferred. uh, I'm, I'm... very much involved in the college athletics world with what I do with college basketball. So I've gotten some people say, hey, what do you think of this? Um, so if you missed it, there was a report that the Big Ten conference athletic directors are almost all on board with a new transfer proposal that would allow every college athlete to transfer once without any penalty, any penalty of having to sit out a year. So basically... Every single college athlete, college basketball players, college football players, they can now transfer one time and play right away. Now, the soonest this legislation could go into effect would be 2021. But, man, that's a, that's a sizable change from the old rule of if you transfer, you have to sit out a year, which was always a pretty sizable deterrent for kids transferring. I mean, I transferred. Uh, from Kansas to Creighton, so I can speak to this. And listen, when I was sitting in the Jayhawk Towers kicking around the decision in Lawrence, Kansas to potentially transfer, one of the biggest factors that I had to weigh was sitting out a year. Nobody wants to do that, right? Like nobody wants to, to just sit out a season. And I think that is something that weighs on a lot of kids' decisions. Like, I think there's a lot of players out there that think about transferring that ultimately don't transfer because they're like, man, I just don't, I don't want to sit out a year. And the other part of the whole having to sit out a year, that also weighs on the coach's decision to take transfers too. Because think about it. If a coach takes a transfer, take Marcus Foster, for example, who left Kansas State and transferred to Creighton. Creighton had 
Marcus Foster on scholarship for the year that he sat out. So you are using a scholarship for three years and only getting two years of eligibility out of Marcus Foster. Like when you only have 13 scholarship, that's a, scholarships, that's a big deal. And I know in football, you got bigger numbers, so it's not as impactful. But nevertheless, like you don't want to be in the business of tying up scholarships for guys that you know cannot get on the field or the court and make an impact. So that makes it so the coaches have to weigh that too. Okay, how bad do I want Marcus Foster? You know, how bad do I want Delano Banton? How bad do I want Shamil Stevenson? You know, how bad do I want Grant Gibbs? You're like, you, you have to think about all those things. How bad do I want big old what Darian Daniels? If you, it, you like, you, you gotta, you gotta think about those things. So the whole sitting out thing when transferring was, was a big deal, not only for the players, but also the coaches making an investment into the kid too. So what do I think, uh, uh on this, this, the, the proposal that every athlete can transfer once without having to sit out. Okay. Let's kind of unpack this whole thing because they're, or there's a lot in it, man. And there are elements I like, and there are elements that I, I am terrified of and don't like. I'll start. What, what I like about what I, what I like about it is it great it greatly simplifies the whole transfer situation and provides some much needed uniformity. Because, and I don't know how we've gotten here. But all of a sudden, the whole transfer rule has morphed into something that lacks any consistency. Relatively speaking, I it wasn't that long ago that I transferred. I transferred and I sat out the 2005-2006 season. So, I mean, we're talking, that's not, relatively speaking, that's not that long ago. The thought of, like, applying for a waiver and being able to be eligible, I mean, that wasn't even, like, a thought. Now, shit, everybody that transfers applies for a waiver. You're like, hey, what the hell? And who gets granted a waiver to be eligible immediately and who doesn't is silly and there is seemingly no rhyme or reason to it at all. You can have two very similar situations. Take Antoine Jones, the Memphis transfer who has to sit out for Creighton right now. There are some of... Antoine Jones's teammates who transferred from Memphis who are eligible and playing right now, but Jones isn't. You know, like there's just there's no rhyme or reason to it. Quentin Grimes at Kansas left KU and is eligible immediately at Houston. How? I have no idea. You know, I mean, we we all saw it with Noah Vedral. God, no, I love Noah Vedral. And, you know, like listen, there are most times like I, you know, you want to see things kind of shake out for the kids, but like why Noah Vedral was granted a waiver to be eligible immediately is beyond me and why it took so long for it to go through. It's just, so I think, I think something that has, I think this is something that has everyone really frustrated, like the lack of uniformity. There's no consistency. There seems to be no rhyme or reason at all to who's getting a waiver, who's not. And then there's no timetable for it too. I mean, Fred Hoiberg was kind of held hostage seemingly for all of the preseason hell, even into the season on what was going to happen with Shamil Stevenson, who was a transfer who was at Pitt and then Nevada. And then now at, ne at Nebraska, they'd applied for a waiver. And you're just kind of like sitting there, like twiddling your thumbs. Like, is it going to happen? I don't know. I have no idea when this decision is going to be made and who, you know, really what's going to go into it. So 
at least this new proposal, giving everyone one free transfer, for lack of a better term, clears things up, right? Makes it simple, makes it clean, provides some consistency to it. So I do like that because I hate this nonsensical, inconsistent world we are living in now where for no rhyme or reason, certain guys can transfer and play right away and others can't. So I like that. It's probably the thing I like about it the most is it it cleans up something that is really messy right now. And, you know, the reality is this. It can be hard to justify that players have to sit out if they change schools, but coaches can go coach somewhere else right away. And I know that's something you just go like, well, that's how it's always been. It's like, well, hold on. Let's all just take a deep breath and step back and like think about that. You know, it, it's, it, as the years go on and the more, you know, everybody becomes, you know, thinks about things more, that, that get, that's hard. I get that kind of feels like it gets harder and harder to justify. Like, why should Scott Frost be able to leave Central Florida and coach at Nebraska right away, but Noah Vedrill can't? So it's, it's hard. And you know what? This is kind of where things are headed. The pendulum of power is, is, kind of swinging to the players to even things out for them to have a little more power with things, right? Like it feels like there's an inevitability of college athletes being able to get paid off their name, image, and likeness. Like things are changing. And I always think it's better to get ahead of things and get progressive and get proactive rather than reactive. And again, it's it's always messy each year now like the transfer portal's crazy, right? And then who gets waivers and who doesn't? And, you know, then you even have the messy, the messy situations of, you know, the coaches blocking players of where they can transfer to and where they can't. And then that, that plays out publicly and it's just, it's ugly, right? I just think times are changing and you can kick and scream all you want, but it is what it is. And along those lines, I think college basketball is in an interesting place more so than college football but college basketball and the NCAA it it kind of feels like it's under siege doesn't it and with certain top prospects choosing not to come play college basketball and all the one and dones and players leaving early and like I don't care what anyone says that's all not good because it gives off this perception that college basketball is not a place anyone wants to be. And that's a shame because college basketball is great and does so many great things. But the perception of college basketball and the NCAA is pretty low right now. And I think it would behoove the NCAA and college basketball to be more inclusive than exclusive. I think college basketball needs to do all it can to make it so it's a place where elite players want to be. And if this transfer rule helps that, then I I think it's worth exploring. But with all that said, and I I, I do hate it when people fear monger and paint worst case scenario for things, but 
boy, is this a slippery slope to go down. Boy, if this ain't Pandora's box, I don't know what is. Because let's face it, allowing a one-time transfer with not having to sit out, you are basically creating free agency in college basketball and college football. Like I said at the top, that one year of having to sit out is a huge deterrent for everyone. Coaches have to commit multiple years of a scholarship for fewer fewer years of that player being able to actually be on the court or field, and players have to willingly sit out for a full year, which is not fun. And you know, the year of sitting out forces coaches to really have to plan things out. Like, think about it. if you could be eligible right away. Like if if this rule, like if if you transfer and you're eligible right away, one time transfer eligible right away. Anytime a need pops up for a coach, well, boom, you can go fill it right then and there. It's different now. When the majority of needs that pop up with your roster, the only way to fill it is with a graduate transfer. And I'm sure you've noticed oftentimes the most coveted transfers each year in football and basketball are the grad transfers. Why? Because they can play right away. Well, we'd now be living in a world where the transfer portal would be pretty much chock full of players that can come play for you immediately. Oh boy. And listen, I'm someone who transferred, so I get how this can look or sound coming from me. But at the same time, I also feel like I'm uniquely uniquely qualified to talk about this. But I fear passing this rule would make it so basically very few kids would be patient and work and stick around and fight through frustration to get playing time. I fear that the days of Divino Zigbo are gone. I, I just... the. The whole wait your turn, be patient, work, develop, grow. I just, that could be hard. I think a lot of kids would bail pretty quick if things didn't go well for them at school, at a school right away. I mean, hell, that's happening already. Which makes player development really hard for a program. And the biggest thing, and this is really big in college basketball, Finding continuity with your roster could be extremely difficult if this rule goes through. I mean, it's already tough in college basketball. With all the one-and-dones and players leaving early and transfers now, continuity has taken a big hit, which I think hurts the overall quality of the teams and sport as a whole, and I think it impacts the fans' experience. Like each year, a lot of teams are completely different. And that's hard on everyone. It's hard on the fans. It's hard on the coaches. I'm not so sure. And I may have to walk this one back. 
But I'm not so sure that this new rule proposal, allowing players to transfer once and be eligible right away, I think that rule could impact college football and college basketball more than allowing players to profit off name, image, and likeness. I'm not, I know that sounds crazy. I'm not so sure that the one free transfer wouldn't impact the landscape of college athletics more. Because again, we've like, I think when push comes to shove, the amount of kids that actually would garner a lot of money in the, you know, in the open market for their name, image, and likeness are fairly, I don't think it's as big as, I think we paint this picture like, yeah, everybody's going to be getting like $500,000 endorsement deals. And it's like, listen, these business people are not in their, they, they've built a business because they're usually pretty sound with their money. They're not going to be just like, yeah, this left tackle who may or may not be good. Yeah. Here's $500,000. Yeah. That ain't happening. Here's a hundred grand for that wide receiver. Oh, who is that? That's a shooting guard. Yeah. Give him 50 G's. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But I think allow, I, I'm not so sure that, that allowing players to transfer right away and be eligible right away wouldn't wouldn't have a bigger impact on the sport. And, you know, listen, people love to paint, and I'm doing it a little bit too. Like, I mean, people love to paint a doomsday scenario for these sorts of things. But I, I just, I'm not so sure that in in the doomsday scenario that you conjure up in your mind, I just, man, allowing kids to transfer once without sitting out feels like it would be a, a pretty pretty hectic world. Who knows? Again, just like anything, there would be a spike and then things would normalize, right? Like I bet, you know, when the name, image, and likeness thing goes through, I bet maybe the first couple of years, yeah, you might see people being a little reckless with their money, but then things are going to tighten up. Maybe it'd be the same thing with this tr- this one free transfer. Maybe the first couple of years of it, it would be a mass exodus at the end of every season for it just be like musical chairs and people just changing different it'd be crazy and then it would normalize but again the, the, this rule is one free transfer just one so it's not like you can go from you know my freshman year I'm going to go to Syracuse and now I'm going to go to Mississippi State I didn't like that I'm going to go to Ohio State and no it's it's you get one Free transfer to be eligible right away. So, you know, I, I see a lot of sides to this thing. The devil is always in the details and how this proposed rule would get it, you know, what the language in it would be, how would it would how it would get administered and applied with regards to specifics would be very interesting. I like how it simplifies the transfer process which is becoming a huge deal in college sports. But while simplifying the transfer process itself, you would be making the entire sport potentially more chaotic. And so that's kind of how I say it. I know the thing to do nowadays is to always have a strong, hot take on one side of an issue, but I don't know. I don't have to operate in the daily talking head world, so... I can kind of live in the real world where nuance and gray area exists, you know, and, and, you know, you can, Oh, I don't know, see both sides of an issue and stay level headed about discussing things with it. (laughs) 
that's 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 where I'm going to be with it. So so there you go. It's going to be fascinating to see what what happens with this potential to, you know rule proposal, one that I think could potentially. It could potentially have, you know, pretty sizable ramifications on the landscape of college basketball and college football. All right, let's get to the guest of the day. John Niatawa, Creighton beat writer, Omaha World Herald. Great guy, does a great job. Always enjoy reading his stuff, and I always enjoy talking hoops with him. I love it when I see him at the games and I get to, you know, have our little five-minute chats before the game or whatever. He's just a great guy. He's got a great mind. Um, John was on the pod Right before Denzel Mahoney was eligible, so almost two months ago. So a lot has happened with Creighton during that time. So we have certainly a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. Here is my podcast chat with John the Italian. Well, uh, we, we, we touched base with this guy. Gosh, this would have been... Right at the beginning of December, I think, right as Denzel Mahoney was going to become eligible, we had a lot to talk about. He's Johnny Atawa. He's the Creighton uh, basketball beat writer, the Creighton beat writer for the Omaha World Herald. Uh, John, how are things? Nick, they're pretty good, man. Um, obviously, it's basketball season, so I can't complain. Right. And uh, some news in the Niatawa household uh, two weeks ago, our, our son was born, Simon. So we are... Uh, in full newborn baby mode. <laughs> okay, because I wrote down baby question mark because I had heard some rumblings. Right. I, I had I I don't even think I and maybe shame on me, I don't even think I knew I didn't even know that a baby was on the way. Yeah. But, it's mean, that weird thing, Nick. Like I have really backed away from like the social media, like the personal aspects of social media. I feel like it's just gotten kind of dark. And so I've treated yeah. it like, um, you know, hey, here's my links to my stories if you want to read them. Bye. Um, so I, ha- I I, mean, if I got in a personal, like a really deep conversation with someone, then I kind of unveiled it. But I don't know. I think just naturally I'm kind of more of a private person. So I had I really wasn't broadcasting it. So a lot of people said that to me. I was going to ask so you I guess about I need that. to do a better job. Maybe I need to get some T-shirts or something. I don't know. But. <laughs> Well, but no, but it, it is, I, I agree. It's it's always this weird thing on how much you want to divulge about your personal life when you kind of become a quote unquote public figure with what you and I both do. We're in the media, you know, it's, there's a balance, right? You kind of want to, you want to humanize yourself and let people in, but there's, I don't know, man, like there, there are sometimes, you know, there'll be times I'll post pictures of my daughter Mava, and then I'll like, there are moments I'm like, eh, should I be like, how much should I be doing this? You know, like it's, there's yeah. a weird balance there. Right. I'll tell you what, though, since I've, my son's been on this earth, like I haven't I haven't gone to Twitter or Instagram or, or Facebook yet, but I've wanted to right. more than ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, because it's so I mean, there's so much pride and joy that you have watching him just like be a human. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to share this with everyone. I don't right. even care if they care. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We'll see. Simon may make his Twitter appearance soon. But you're yeah. right, though. It's like. Trying to find that balance. Yeah. I, a lot of times, I'm just like, my role as a journalist is to tell the story of the people I cover, and not right. necessarily tell my own story. So I try to, I don't know. I kind of, I think I err more on the side of like, I think it's smart. I'll just, yeah, just I'll back away. Yeah, I've I've tried to, and I don't know if this is smart or not, but I try. I've I've really pulled back from you know, getting, getting into it with people on Twitter, you know what I mean? Like engaging on, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I just, 
because I I finally asked myself, like, this was probably like a year and a half, two years ago. I'm like, I, I don't think I've ever gotten into it with anyone on Twitter and felt better about anything, no. about myself, no. about anything after the fact. So, like, I, I'm with you. Like, there's, I, I still, there are times I, I, I revert and I'll, I'll kind of like, Go back to where I'm, I'm, you know, divulging too much, or I'll, I'll get into it with someone. But I've, yeah, like I, I've started to, to pull back a little bit as well. I try to give people a response yeah. as much as I can, especially if they're asking questions, and so I try to get back to them as best I can. But you're right. I, so I was, I'm not voting uh, in the AP poll this year, but I was an AP voter the last three years, and I'll tell you what, it got a little bit. <laughs> I got a little bit too invested going back and forth with people about who I was voting for and who I wasn't. Right. I remember I was visiting my family in Indianapolis. My sister, she has two nieces, now three, at the, uh, but two at the time. Or, or I'm sorry. She has two kids, now three. They're my nieces. Yes. Uh, you know how it goes. Yes. So uh, I was hanging out with them while also like pulling my phone out out of my pocket. I think we might've been playing like phase 10 or something and <laughs> some car game. And I'm like, hold on one second before I lay down my hand, let me just respond to this dude in Michigan. Who's upset that I don't have the Wolverines ranked in the top 25. Right. So I was like, at some point you do need to just check out because you'll spend so much time on there oh, and man. it's, it, and it's pointless really. Yes. I mean, it, it, I, I guess it's not pointless because there usually, I mean, I feel like there's reasonable people on the other end that uh-huh. want to hear from you, but if you're just kind of going around in circles, then it becomes pointless. So you got to yes. kind of recognize that. Yeah, I've I've tried to, and this is, you know, I certainly see the negative comments, but I only try to acknowledge the positive one. Like if if someone if someone you know were to, hey Nick, great job on the the Seton Hall game. I will I try to respond to that. You know, like, mm-hmm. but any and it's not to say I'm trying to like create a world like a fairy tale world where like I only know that I mean I see the negative stuff but it's like if someone says hey you suck I, I mean like what am I I don't know like I see it like am I, I don't really want to engage in that and I've even had to and it's it can be challenging I've I've tried to make a rule with myself that like I don't check Twitter during the a game that I'm calling mm-hmm. you know I, I might have told you this before, but like there's there you because know, what the worst thing you do is someone you know you're it's the under 16 media timeout. You check Twitter, you know, a Providence fan or just, you know, just is like, man, but I can't believe how big of a homer this guy is. And so then you all of a sudden you're in your head. You're like, okay, I need to go out of my way to praise, you you know, Malik white for this or that, you know, and then, and then you're not just, you're you're not just like saying what you see. And And then it's a weird slope you're going down. Yeah. And, and the thing about Twitter is sometimes it can be an echo chamber. And a lot of times, it's not representative of your whole audience. So yeah. you're getting kind of a different view on it. But yep, yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's a fun place to be, but it's also, it can be distracting and, and not exactly constructive. So I don't know. I'm still, I, I, I might go dive back in. There was yeah. a while there, you know, five years ago where I was like on it all the time and interacting with people and sharing parts of my life uh, with the folks on Twitter and, and same with Instagram. So maybe, and Snapchat too, but I dialed it all back. <laughs> right, I I, I hear you, man. I well, since you got to get back to uh, Simon here at some point, the the little guy. We I won't keep you too long here because you and I were joking before we came on. Like our last conversation, did it last two hours? Like I mean, we almost. <laughs> Almost went two hours on Creighton basketball, so we got. I like, think my phone like died. 
no, uh, right I got after, an alert that said, up, "Really?" I, as soon as I hung up, it was done. <laughs> yeah, I was so. like, "I'm done, done, man. I am. I'm. Yeah. I need to go hit the ice bath here after this." But so we won't right. go. We we won't go too long here. Uh, but let, let's let's talk a little Creighton hoops here, John. Um, so we're taping this on. It's about six thirty on Thursday, February sixth. So yesterday, Creighton lost on the road at Providence, and let's let's start there. I mean, like, I think. I think when I say you, I mean, I'm talking you, meaning like everyone. You can't ride the wave too much. You can't, after the Villanova game, it can't be, oh, this Creighton team's amazing. Sweet 16 is happening this year. And then after the Providence loss, it can't be, this team stinks. There's no way they're making a run. Like, I, I just don't think like both, both ends of the spectrum are probably equally like too much. The reality is with that game, like that's probably the best Providence has shot the ball. And that's probably the worst Creighton has shot the ball. And when that's the case... It's not hard to connect the dots as to what really happened. I guess, how how do you balance, like, really... Because every game matters, but you also don't want to overreact to it. I guess, how, how did you kind of make heads or tails of the Providence loss? Yeah, I think um, you're right in that when when one team shoots one of it has one of its worst shooting performances and another team has one of its best, generally speaking, the team, no matter who we're talking about, we're talking about Duke Boston College or... Right. or Purdue, Michigan, you know, like the team that shoots it better, it significantly above its average and, and the other team way below, you're going to, you know, what the result is. So that's, I mean, that's one reason not to make too big of a deal of it, I guess. But, um, you know, I don't know. Hey, it's so funny riding the wave of college basketball this season. Uh, it can be so easy to do because the highs are very high mm-hmm. in this. And if you no fan of who, what fan of a team you are, like most teams have beat have like really showcased their potential um in a in a dramatic sort of emphatic way in college basketball this year but then they've hit a lot of teams have hit rock bottom and not not to say that this was necessarily a rock bottom moment but it was certainly um it's a bad were, second the, half it was a really bad yeah. second half you know uh yeah. that's about as bad as poor as Craig's played it for 20 minutes as it like since San Diego State basically yep. so like to see those two games back to back, it does like, it's hard to kind of make sense of all that. Um, but you know, generally speaking, going into it, I was, um, I was curious to see how the Jays would respond. Um, not just to like the praise and the feel like the good feelings, the good vibes that you get from beating a team like Villanova and the confidence that you have. Um, but how will you respond at Providence, which, uh, already it's a tough place to play stylistically it's tough for the Jays but also you know that the Friars needed that one yeah um, Creighton went on a road trip a two-game road trip and I think if those guys were honest they would feel good about going home one and one they wanted to go two and oh but if you went home one and one you feel pretty good so you win that first game suddenly you go to Providence and you're you're thinking, okay, we're playing with house money, whereas Providence is playing for its life. Mm-hmm. Like it has to win that game, um, given what's ahead of it and what it did in the past in terms of making the NCAA tournament, its resume, um, you know, the stains that it put on it. So that's what I was curious about. And, and if Creighton were it, would have been able to um, to rise to the occasion and get a win, I think it would have said a lot. So instead, it kind of just, I think maybe it's a little bit of a reality check for uh, those of us who follow the Jays, but. Um, I think it, it can't be too much of a surprise to see uh, an L uh, at Providence after after the Jays are coming off a big win at, at Nova. Yeah, I mean, the, 
Vegas favored Providence for the game. Just you know, yeah. just food for thought. I mean, Providence was favored. Uh, I mean, and I'm. It's easy to say it's ad fact. Like I thought. Like you know, when you're kind of doing the, you got the, you get the schedule out, and you're like, okay, that's a win, that's a loss, that's a win. Like I had this as a loss. Like I thought they were going to lose this game. And what's for as as much as you want to throw stones at Providence, I mean, Providence probably should have won the game in Omaha. You know, I mean, it, it took like a a miraculous flurry from Creighton to to find a way to win the game at home. And I just think, you know, with the way Creighton is built, and I know this sounds crazy, and you might go, okay, Nick, give me a break. Like, are you drinking on this Thursday night? But like, I'm not so sure that I would, if I'm Creighton, I'm not so sure that I wouldn't feel more comfortable playing Villanova in Madison Square Garden than I would would Providence, just yeah. because of the matchup. And I know that again, you're like, what? I mean, come on, Villanova is a top twenty team. Like, you gotta be kidding me. But I'm just, I think with the way Creighton is built, Providence is a is a hard team for Creighton to beat. Yeah, and I mean, the way, yeah, the way that they that they can really get on the fan. Man, I thought last night, like Malik White. David Duke's always a really good defender, but I thought Malik White was really good. I thought Reeves and Diallo were both good defensively. Um, and on the glass, I thought Providence's bigs played pretty well. Like just as a whole, as a team, I thought they did a good job um, taking away some of the things. They really pressed up on the great on the Jays' guards. And I I don't know if Villanova just has like the foot speed to do that. They have the length, but I don't know if they have like sure they pressed out and tried to take away threes, but. Um, once Creighton gets his pace going and and uh, moves those guys around a little bit, it becomes harder for them to stick, kind of stick like glue the way the Providence's guys were. And yeah. I think they benefited from a, a a a whistle that was it was a tight tight it wasn't a tight whistle. Yeah. You know, like they were yep. letting a lot of things go. A physical game where there, I mean, there weren't fouls called on either side, but I think that ended up favoring Providence. And then. Um, it's interesting because I was thinking about it as I was rewatching the game. I'm like, you know, the way Creighton's constructed defensively, if a team shoots the ball well, um, because of the way, and you talked about this on your last, last podcast, because of the way that Creighton has to help yep. defensively and kind of plug things up inside because of the size disadvantage, especially at the four and the five, like it's going to give up open jump shots. And a lot of times it's hoping to give up open jump shots to the guys who aren't great shooters. And, you know, Providence has a couple guys who can get hot, and they have they showed that they did. They got hot in that game, but I think Creighton's just going to be in games a lot of times where it's going to have to hope that that team isn't on. Totally and correct. That, yep. That pro, yeah, that that's worked for the most yep. part all year, um, and it didn't work at Providence. Those guys, I mean, <laughs> they shot twelve with twenty from three. It's their best shooting percent or shooting performance from distance all year, except for maybe like sacred heart, which is a season opener. So uh, if they shoot their average they're I think they would have made like seven to 20. So that's a 15 point difference. Incredibly significant, obviously. So um, I think that's just kind of how the, how it's going to be for, for Creighton defensively is they're going to give up jumpers and uh, they have to hope that either they give up those jumpers to guys who can't shoot or, um, or guys who just aren't hitting that day, yep. and uh, and Providence, unfortunately for Creighton, was hitting. Yep, that's. I mean, I think that's when you know when Paul Lusk and and the staff are you know they're devising a game plan. You know, they're going into it obviously realizing they have a massive size deficiency, especially when they play small with Mahoney and 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 Jefferson at the four and the five, and so they sit there and go, okay, uh, we can't 
we can't take away everything. What are we selling out to try to eliminate and what are we living with? And, yep. you know, Creighton's a team that's going, all right, we're going to pick your, your two or three shooters that aren't great. And we're going to live with those guys taking shots. And if they make them, Creighton's in trouble. And if they don't, I mean, Creighton's in, in great shape. And in, in a lot of ways, their, their, their defensive game plans aren't too terribly different than Nebraska's right now. Like Nebraska, Fred Hoiberg's doing the same thing. They're just like, they're selling out to pack the paint. If a team's making threes, they're going to get rocked, you know? And if they're not, they can beat Purdue and Iowa. And, yeah. you know, the difference is obviously that Creighton's just a better overall team and offensive team than Nebraska so they can you know even overcome more but that's just when when you are deficient in the post you got to sell out to take away you know Nate Watson and those guys and live with what happens from the three-point line to a certain extent yeah they gave up 18 points in the paint which is a season low for Providence yeah like that was the plan that you talk about hey you sell out and stop something like crazy that's what they did they stopped that uh, unfortunately, they just gave up twelve threes, yeah, you know, and and that's not by design. But you kind of had to they had they had to live with that. So I think that if they played Providence again, they'd say we're going to do what we just did again and hope that AJ Reeves doesn't go six for eight and Alpha Diallo doesn't bang in a corner three with the momentum's tilting Providence's way and and uh, David Duke doesn't hit like a step back three at the end of the shot clock. Like um, I think they they that's just kind of the way that they're going to have to go. And obviously on the other end, offensively, they have to find a way to not score. 20 points and a half. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, they, after the game, they kind of talked about how they liked a lot of the shots they got against the zone. Um, they just didn't hit them. So, yeah, I think in a game like that, when the team is hitting, uh, then it does put a lot of pressure on their offense. And maybe that, that pressure, they felt it as the momentum started to shift. And then maybe they started to press a little bit offensively. Uh, but it does. Yeah. Like when the team's hitting and Creighton's going to give up jump shots, and then, then they got to score with them, and they weren't able to do that against Providence. And I think there's a, you know, there's a, a when when Providence went to the zone in the second half, I've always felt like teams that aren't zone teams, you know, like Jim Beheim or whatever, where it's like this is, you know, what they do is is play zone. I always think if you can if you can bang a three or or get a lob dunk right away, you can spook them out of the zone. You know, they're gonna be like ah. Forget this. Where no, 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 no. Let's go back man to man. And and Creighton wasn't able to bang shots right away. And then all of a sudden, that's then zone gets into your head. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. then you really get on your heels. Now all of a sudden, uh, you're you're second guessing things. You're not you're not aggressive. And I mean, I've I've said all like I think one of the one of the things about Creighton. I think zone bothers Creighton. Uh, I know it's weird where you go, okay, Creighton's a great three-point shooting team. Zoning them is probably not a great idea, but I don't know. I've always felt like zone bothers Creighton. I thought two years ago that Creighton team was really good against the zone. It was the team with Marcus Foster and Kyrie Thomas. Marcus's senior year, Kyrie's junior year, because both of those guys are big-time playmakers that can get in that part of a defense, and they're good passers. Like They both average like three assists a game or something. And so – and they had Martine to put pressure on the rim. I, I thought that team was pretty good at attacking the zone. But since I've been covering the team, this is my fourth year now. Yeah, there have been moments when they just kind of get in funks and they haven't been able to like sort through it. And I think it, like you said, it kind of gets in their head a little yeah. bit. And I thought, you know, they definitely made some adjustments. They tried different guys in the middle of it. 
Um, I thought they did a pretty good job of getting the ball, moving it quickly and getting it to the rim, but then they got shots blocked or they just missed shots at the rim. Um, and it just kind of seemed to snowball in a negative way. You know, those threes weren't falling mm-hmm. early and then they tried to go inside and then they kind of finished. And then it was like, Oh no, we're down 10. Um, and so, and then it got worse. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think this team, I mean, the stats would tell you that they were okay against the zone. They just hadn't seen a team no, normally kind of what you said. Uh, I, I think a team, they, the opponents haven't stuck with it for that as long of a period of time as Providence does, because I, I thought Providence was going to get out of it as soon as like, I think Tyson hit a three at the yeah. top of the key. Yeah. And I was like, that might be enough. Yeah. They're like, was, ah, screw this. Let's go back man to man. Yeah. Right. And, and then there's another good one that finally goes in. It's like the floodgates might open, but Providence, to its credit, stuck with it, and, and Creighton couldn't make them pay. So most teams, I feel like this year, have shown it, and then as soon as they've given up a couple of threes, like this is that that's how it was with Providence in the first game. Mm-hmm. I mean, Providence showed it a couple times, but then it stick with it. And I think that there, there's just some concern about what do you do when you give a Mitch Ballack or Marcus Zagorowski an open shot repeatedly that's that's kind of scary yeah, so terrifying um, we'll see yeah we'll <laughs> right. see if more teams yeah, try it right. uh, uh down the road against them because that length is that not every team has providence's length um and and but it definitely bothered creighton last night so denzel mahoney i mean it, obviously he struggled uh he, he had his probably his worst game uh as a blue jay uh last night against providence but up until last night, he had really started to settle in and was averaging about 15 points per game over his last six games until the Providence game was shooting efficiently. From what did you think? Take me into your mind as you've watched Denzel get integrated. Like, what is what is what has allowed him to start to fit in and and flourish? Like, is what 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 to you has stood out? Because I, I mean, I think Travis Steele called him a game changer, and I'd right. agree. Yeah, I thought um, – I just thought it was like a flow and timing thing. When I talked to him a little bit, he was talking about like getting his rhythm. Two plays stuck out to me in early in Big East play. He drove left because he's a right-handed driver. So mm-hmm. he drove left against Butler late in the game. I think they were down four and got a shot blocked. And then against Villanova, uh, I think it was an ISO play. He drove yeah. left. On the, on the baseline out of bounds late. Yeah. Yeah. yeah got yep. a shot blocked. Yep. And then I like, I don't remember. I mean, he got blocked last night, but there was that, when you talk about that stretch where he looked like he settled, it just looked like he had a better feel of where guys were going to be. There was a play, um, another left-handed drive against Xavier where he was, he beat Tyreek Jones off the dribble. Yeah. And he kind of just like, he had a good feel of where Tyreek was. And he kind of waited for him, got the body contact in the A and one. And so that to me was just, I mean, maybe it was just an adjustment of like better players length, um, you know, again, just kind of getting used to playing ball again. So I thought he was just uh, had a, had a better like feel for the game. And then, you know, he's sharing it a little bit more and knowing which shot to turn down and, and when to, when to fire it up. And I think he's just more confident too, that he started to hit threes because he was a 40% shooter from three-point range at SEMO, and then you start his Creighton career like, I don't know what it was, 5 of 20. Yeah, something like 5, five of 24 or something. Or something. You know, yeah. Not good. But he started to hit, see that ball go in, and I think that helped him too. So, yeah, he, his I, – I, I feel like his – where he helps Creighton is it gives them sort of – certainly it gives them an advantage having um, another weapon at the four. Um, him and, and Damian Jefferson can can – 
hurt teams there, especially when they're putting so much emphasis on stopping Creighton's guards. But it gives Creighton sort of another option if the bigs just don't have it working or if they're in foul trouble or, or banged up. Because without him previously, if Christian Bishop got in foul trouble or when Kelvin Jones was out, like – Damian Jefferson was playing the five and, and that wasn't a great option, you no. know, and then suddenly you're going deep into the bench in, in your backcourt. So I think this allows Creighton a little bit more lineup versatility and totally. maybe it's working with five guards and you can put teams in binds. That's what they did against Xavier. And I thought they did it against Nova too uh, for stretches. So um, in the long term, you know, he didn't play, like you said, that was, he didn't score against Providence. That was his worst game. Uh, but over the long haul, um, obviously he's he's making a huge impact for the Jays and and gives them a better chance of kind of reaching their peak at the end of the year where they want to be. Three three questions and then I'm I'm letting you run and go be a dad. Okay, uh, Marcus Zagorowski, you know he like the reality is he kind of set an unrealistic bar for how he was scoring and playing in the non-con. Like, I mean, I don't know if anyone if you thought he was going to continue to you know shoot fifty five percent from the floor and score thirty against Butler. Like, I mean, come on, that's just like that's that's really hard to do. I thought he did a better job of like creating space and hitting his little mid range stuff against Nova, but obviously he struggled against Providence. And you know he's he's slowed down a little bit. I think there are obvious things to point to of he's getting a lot of the of the you know the other teams emphasis in terms of their defensive game plans and all that uh but what what have you what are you seeing from from Zegarowski because I I've been on the right I just think like he is Creighton's gonna go if Creighton goes to the sweet 16 he played great like if he has to play well for Creighton to really pop and I don't think it's a huge dot to connect that Zegarowski goes I think went one for 10 or whatever it was against Providence and and Creighton really struggled yeah, I feel like he's not getting as many in rhythm three looks as I remember him getting earlier in the year, just like catch and shoots. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That may just be total anecdotal, but that's just one thing that popped into mind. I feel like he's he's being forced to kind of just be the creator. And and instead of like, whereas I feel like you know, he was a creator at times in the non-conference too, but um now the book's out on him a little bit, and they kind of know his moves. I remember the Nova first Nova game. I could hear the players talking on the court about, um, you know, keeping him off his right hand, and even if he goes left, watch him cross back right. And mm-hmm. Sadiq Bay was sitting on it a couple times, and so I think that they know some of his go-to moves. That's one thing. I feel like uh, in the I th- what where his game had elevated, and what what was really impressive to me. Non-con was that he, he was uh, finding ways to score inside the arc, yeah. whether it was like eight to ten, the mid-range J driving and getting to the rim, and those have either because teams have you know stopped his drive uh, because they've worn down a little bit by attacking him defensively. Maybe it's just he's not getting as many calls, or they could be a little bit more physical with him. They they put longer, better defenders on him than he saw in the non-conference because of kind of what you said, how important he is to Creighton. So I think there's a lot of factors, but knowing the player that Marcus is, like I think he's just, you know, he's taking all this in yeah. and, and trying his best to, I, I, I expect that you'll see him sort of, okay, I'm learning right now and it's frustrating, but I think that you'll see him take a jump. And you're seeing it a little bit, like I think he's being more of a distributor lately. Like he's recognizing where how teams are kind of swarming to him. 
Like he had seven assists against Providence, and I feel like he had um, a couple other plays where he set guys up just from you know his ability mm-hmm. to kind of manipulate the defense. So I think he's going to take a jump, and you'll see the scoring number go back up um, at some point here down the stretch. But it, yeah, it's definitely dip. But he's man, he is like he might be the number one, he might be number one on the priority list for teams defensively. Yes, right. I mean, that's what, basically what it seems like with it with who they put on him. So. Um, he's drawn a lot of attention, and 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 I think, he, but I think he will adjust. You can t- when any coach, I t- any opposing coach that's getting ready to play Creighton, like the the, the first name is Zegarowski. They're like, man, yeah. this dude is. I mean, I think I think uh, I don't think he's getting as much in transition, and I think that it, like he he would get a bunch of dr- he. I bet if you went back and ran the numbers in the non-con, he was getting six to ten points, just like. You know, push it, lay up, push it, mid range, push it three, like yeah. and and he's not getting as many of those because because that's conference play. Teams like teams are are more dialed into the pace and what they need to do to slow Creighton down in the open floor. And so I think that's kind of hurt uh, him a little bit. And that's that's one thing that will be nice when when Creighton does obviously you know draw a team in the NCAA tournament like. These teams aren't used to the pace, and I actually think like I think I think when Zegarowski gets an, a crack at a team that isn't dialed in on him like that with the with the pace, I think then you might see the the scoring kind of creep back up for him. But I'm yeah, I'm not worried about a, it. That's a good point. Uh, okay, so here we are, gosh, what, we're about like halfway through the Big East slate. Um, how do you how do you size up the Big East now, and how does Creighton kind of fit into that? Uh, having seen almost every team, yeah, I. I don't know why. Why am I a Seton Hall hater? I'm a Seton Hall hater for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> really? Why. Okay, let me let, give it to me. I'll play. see if I can because I I I think they're pretty darn good. What do you? What do you? Every time I watch them play, I'm like, dang man! Like, I, and we talked about this briefly last time we chatted on the podcast. Like the high, like Quincy McKnight is distributed like crazy. Whether he's running those ball screens or yeah. setting things up right. for shooters, um, and Miles Powell's Miles Powell like. I don't know why it is, but every time I like someone asks me about the Big East, I'm like, well, uh, we'll see what Seton Hall does. They haven't played Creighton yet or Nova yet. And I, I don't know why, but they seem to be uh, – every time I turn them on again, they, they, they impress me. So maybe I should uh, – I think it's probably because I was skeptical at the start of the year and I haven't been able to shake that sure. like preseason mentality that I like put in my head for whatever reason. But uh, they – they got a. They got the lead. They got the cushion. They do. So um, everyone's going to be gunning for Seton Hall. Obviously, you got to play Nova at Nova. That's like a must-win game for Villanova. Well, haven't lost two in a row. Um. So, it. But it kind of feels like it's Nova and Seton Hall, and then a gap, and then the rest of the teams. I think um, Creighton, based on what I've seen, is may have this the edge on that next group of teams, Creighton, Providence, Marquette, Butler. Um, but with the Jays, kind of what we've talked about, like they are, they do have such a small margin for error that they have to play well, especially the three guards um, have to be, have to be really good and locked in. Otherwise uh, they can get beat by pretty much anybody. So um, I think, I think Creighton's in a good spot. Honestly, mm-hmm. they're, they're better positioned for not just an NCAA tournament berth, but um, you know, uh, the, the, stand, the finish in the standings better position than I thought they would be going into the year. I, I did pick them fourth, I think, but uh, to be six and four with what I think was the tougher part of their schedule. I mean, they got some good teams coming up, but five of eight at home 
Um, and Creighton obviously plays really well at home and they can get his pace going and shoots it better. Um, so I think they have a chance to really finish strong, like a six and two, I mean, maybe five and three, six and two, um, there's an opportunity to do that. And so, um, to me, that would, that would be a good year. I know the Jays were, the players were talking a little bit last week about, um, aiming for a big East title, then they beat Nova and you're thinking, okay, yeah, they got a, they got a shot to do that. And so if they fall short, you may think, well, it's a little disappointing, but I think if they were to finish, 11 and 7, 12 and 6 in a league that's the, I would say, the second best league in the country this year. That's, you got to feel pretty good totally about, um, you know, not only your season, but your potential in the postseason, what you can do, um, having managed that gauntlet and navigated your way through it. So um, I've been impressed so far, honestly. On the grand scheme of things, I've been impressed with what they've accomplished. So Agreed. we'll see how they finish because obviously everything ratchets up a little bit in February. It's going to be an important month for the Jays. Yeah, it's so interesting that like Creighton's done with Providence, haven't played in twice, they're done with Xavier, and yet they, they haven't seen St. John's, they haven't seen Seton Hall. Like, it's just weird how yeah. their schedule falls. How do you, well, last thing I'll let you run, how do you think Creighton will handle St. John's press? Because they really haven't gotten pressed at all this year. I know. It'd be interesting. I think I would think okay. I would think so too. But, on paper, you go, God, they're they play like five guards. You would think like, but man, I don't know. You never know until you, until <laughs> until you know Figueroa and Heron and those guys are are heating you up. You kind of just don't know. Yeah, I like that. Uh, there's one kid they have on it. I think it's Rutherford. Rutherford can lock you. Yeah, he's a. He he is he's so deceptive with is he coming is he bringing that pressure is he right. coming with the trap maybe he's backing off me oh no all of a sudden he stole the ball from me so <laughs> I I think he him and him and uh, Figueroa could I mean I would imagine they're just gonna try to hound Creighton like crazy Marcus Zagorowski and, and Tyshawn um, I don't know I, I would think they'd be okay though they, like. Yeah, they haven't seen this type of press before, but they've definitely worked at it in practice. I've seen them work against the press at times this year. Um, these guys have experience. Uh, you know, Balik and Alexander, uh, Damian Jefferson, like they, they've been to play basketball before, like a, a lot at this level. So um, they're a good team in terms of not turning the ball over a lot. They've yeah. been that way. So I think, um, I think that they should be able to, not just break it, but exploit it. Yeah, you I mean, we look think. at St. John's numbers. Yeah, they get a lot of steals, but they also give a lot. They give up a lot of assists, which to me tell like it says, well, teams when they break that press, there's a lot of options open, and no so doubt. that's what I would imagine Creighton. Look, that's what they'll look to do, and I think they'll be okay doing that. It'll be interesting. I'm I'm really excited for this game. Like it'll be it'll be interesting to see. You know, I mean, first of all, if like St. John's has the guts to like come into. Omaha and like press these dudes for 40 minutes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're, they're going to, how, how, I guess what I would curious is how like strong are they pressing? Like, are they just doing the one-on-one yeah. man look or are they really coming with that trap? Um, and how, um, you know, they, it's probably hard to bring that to trap every time because you just don't have as much energy, but like, um, if it's like that Memphis, you remember when Memphis yeah. catches up that press in the NIT? Right. I was like, for about five minutes of that game, I was like, oh my! It gosh. was it was a complete meltdown, and it was like <laughs> I've it was unbelievable. It was it was five or six minutes of like, oh my gosh, this is this is this is like everybody cover their eyes. This is not right. good. So if St. John's were to bust that out at the start of the game, and suddenly it's like. 20 to six right then yeah okay that might be something but luckily for Creighton and against Memphis that uh the Jays had a, a decent enough cushion to right. where yeah they blew the lead but 
eventually Memphis ran out of gas and Creighton could close it out. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how, like, how how much can they press and, and bring sort of that tenacity and keep it at that high level for 40 minutes on the road against a team that doesn't mind playing up and up yeah. and down and, and pushing pace. I always think the big thing when you're playing a pressing team is to keep them off the free throw line because free throws are when they can set their press. And, mm, yeah. and then just, I know this is like, you know, you, you try to get stops against every team, but like, if they're not scoring, they can't set their press. You know what I mean? Like if if you're getting stops, it's it's hard to press off of a missed shot. You know what yeah. I mean? So like, I just think stringing the the ability for for Creighton to string together stops almost go if you want to go the you know get a, get some kills to steal the Xavier uh, the the Xavier analytical thing that they do. But uh, yeah, free keeping off free throw line and stringing together stops. I think if they do that, then then a press is kind of hard to sink its teeth into you. You know. Yeah, is a, a good point because I've what I've noticed is when when uh, when uh, when they can set it, it, it does become it's way better. Yeah, it's way yeah, a, it's a way big difference better. in it. Totally, he's Johnny Atawa, Omaha World Herald. Uh, you, you got multiple podcasts going. What's the one with you and D Marinas called after the games? It's fantastic. I'm blanking. Yeah, so we do uh, the Blue Jay Beat. The Blue Jay Beat. You know, I, I think yes. that's what we call it. It's it's actually Matt's pod. Right. I just hop on it every now and then <laughs> after games. So he deserves the credit. I just, I might like just stand in. Um, but yeah, so I do that. And then the half court press with Chris yep. Teddy through the World Herald. So I talk a lot about hoops, which is a good thing for me. It's but. a great thing. <laughs> It's, it's a great thing. I love it. Uh, well, make sure everybody go check out John's stuff, Omaha.com. Uh, I kept you way longer than I said I would. I apologize. Go be a dad, okay? John, go be a dad. Locking in right now. I love it. it. Thanks, John. A Parkville Media Production.